In the book of Jude, and in verse 3, we read these words. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. As in those days, so in this day, the urgent need in our Western culture is to defend and contend for the Bible and for the truth of the gospel in public places and in those spheres of influence where decisions are made. And Leslie Newbigin was such a defender of and contender for the faith. Some of you will recall it was our privilege to have him here in the latter days of his life uh, in this very room at the age of 86 to lecture during our autumn lectures of 1995 on the subject of that lethal worldview, nihilism. Leslie Newbigin gave his life to Jesus Christ as a young man in his 20s. And his whole life as a missionary abroad and at home was given to commending Jesus Christ to others and presenting him as the unique and the universal saviour and presenting the Bible as public truth. And his life and his very many books, most of which were written when he returned from his service in India, are a public testimony to a life cause of commending and commending the truth of the Christian gospel. There are three biblical texts which come to my mind as I read Leslie Newbigin, and they seem to me to encapsulate many of his recurring themes. One is from 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, when the apostle writes, For the which cause I suffer these things, for I know whom I have believed, that is Jesus Christ, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I committed unto him against that day. And then in that portion of the Apostle Paul's writings, which have just been read to us, when he says, where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the disputer of this age? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 to 25. And then finally, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For Leslie Newbigin, the cross of Jesus was the central point and the focus of history. The Bible was for him, one of his great phrases, public truth. And faith in the crucified, risen and exalted Jesus Christ was the entire basis of his life. He trusted 
in God's revelation in the scriptures and he knew in whom he stood, Jesus Christ, and he had confidence that Jesus Christ would keep him in that faith until that day which lies ahead of all of us. Let me begin by giving you a very brief survey of the life of Leslie Newbigin. He was born in 1910 and he died in 1998. And he had Northumbrian origins. Uh, that should appeal at least to those of you who know and love Northumbria. In his autobiography, he describes his early childhood memories of picnics in the heather of the Northumbrian moors and collecting shells on the beach at Cullercoats Bay and trips in the sidecar of his father's motorcycle to the village of Kenton, which is now a part of the urban sprawl of Newcastle. And those memories, including also lying on his bed, listening to his mother, who was an accomplished pianist playing a Chopin sonata. He had godly parents. And his father became a businessman on the Newcastle Quayside, not very far from here. He became a ship owner. And in 1922, his father was chairman of the North of England Ship Owners Federation. Perhaps the first mistake, Leslie was sent to a Quaker boarding school, to Leighton Park in Reading. And from that school, he qualified to go to Queen's College, Cambridge, to read that golden subject of geography. Before he went to Cambridge, he spent a few months in 1928 working on the Newcastle Quayside, just down the road. And for those of you with long memories, 1928 was the year of the opening of the New Tyne Bridge and the New Grammar School, which was called Heaton Grammar School. And as a matter of local interest, his sister, Frances, was for many years head of English at its counterpart, Heaton High School, for girls. It was his original intention to enter the family firm on the quayside, but his father took well, and perhaps better than he expected, his calling to be ordained and to become a missionary to India. It appears he didn't argue about that at all. Leslie Newing makes it very clear in his autobiography that by the end of his schooling, he had abandoned the Christian assumptions of his home and childhood and would not describe himself as a Christian. He then moved on, as I've said, to read geography at Cambridge, but clearly during those years, he felt the hand of God upon his life, and he was able to write this at the, towards the end of those years at Cambridge. He said, I knew with an overwhelming certainty that my life was in God's hands, that he, rather than I, had direction of it, and that I would be free of all doubt and anxiety. At that moment, I did not just believe, I knew. That's a favorite phrase of Newbegin's. To believe is to know and to know with certainty. A recurring theme over his long life. Belief in the living Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord brought him an assurance and certain knowledge, and biblical revelation drew forth from him a response. As the Apostle John writes in John 20, verse 30, 31, and many other signs truly Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, 
you might have life through his name. To believe and to have faith for him was to have an absolute certain conviction about reality. And in this sense, for him to believe was to have spiritual sight. In 1931, he left Cambridge to go to that queen of cities, Glasgow. He moved to Glasgow University, where he became secretary to the student Christian movement there. And it was in Glasgow that he met and proposed to his wife-to-be, Helen, in the romantic setting of a bluebell wood north of Mulgai, which lies to the north of the city of Glasgow, and there they together determined to be missionaries. After two years in Glasgow, he went back to Cambridge, where he began a period of three years of ministerial training for the Church of Scotland at Westminster College. And in 1936, he was commissioned by the Church of Scotland in Edinburgh as a missionary. That same year, with his recently married wife, Helen, he set sail for Madras in India. In his autobiography, which is called Unfinished Agenda, we read that in his second period at Cambridge, when he went back from Glasgow to Cambridge, he distanced himself from two of the leading theologians of the day, those of you who know about these things. Karl Barth, whom he thought was incomprehensible, and also from a leading scholar of the time, a much vaunted scholar, C.H. Dodd. Um, His concern about the respected theologian Dodd was that in Dodd's unnecessary desire to demythologize the wrath of God, he had effectively removed the idea of the holy love of the living God. And to Newbigin, you had to hold together the concept of God as a God of wrath and a God of love. It was at Westminster College that he studied the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans. And this dramatically moved him away from, I guess, a position of theological liberalism, as it has done to many others through history, and to a very high view of the centrality and objectivity of the atonement at Calvary. And the cross and the resurrection became for him the crux which made sense of the whole of human history. And he writes of his position at that time, I was much more of an evangelical than a liberal. Eleven years after going to India in 1947, he was consecrated at the age of 38 as Bishop of Madura and Ramnad in the newly formed United Church of South India. From 1959 to 65, he spent some years with the International Missionary Council and then with the World Council of Churches. And then in 1965, he became for nine years Bishop of Madras in India. Leslie Newbigin never believed in retirement. Christians do not retire. And in 1974, he returned to Britain at the age of 65 and became minister of an inner city church in Birmingham. And he went on lecturing and writing and speaking to the end of his life on earth. And as I've already said, it was our privilege in in 1965 to hear him talk in the Autumn Lectures series, and in 1993, before that, 
he lectured to us on Jesus Christ, unique and universal. Remember when he came here in his latter years, he was almost blind, and those who were privileged to be there will testify to the clarity and the liveliness of his mind, even at that very advanced age. Liz Newbigin wrote a commentary on John's Gospel. I think John's Gospel would be his favorite Gospel. And in John's Gospel, we remember those words of the risen Jesus to Thomas, the doubting disciple. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. And for Leslie Newbigin to believe and to exercise faith was to see and to know and have assurance and certainty. I'm sure that many of us will remember him with affection and with thanksgiving to God. I became first aware of Leslie Newbigin in a very vague way, indeed, through his sister Frances Newbigin, who was, for many years, senior English teacher at what was then Heaton High School for Girls in Newcastle. Believe it or not, she and I were both members of the National Union of Teachers. This is confession time. (laughs) She was concerned, rightly, at the time, about my apparent drift into what she called Marxism. I'm sure it wasn't quite that. But I had then, believe it or not, the very naive view that socialism was the proper working out of the Christian faith. And she helped me very greatly to see sense, although I have to say that I was not as grateful at the time as I ought to have been. I tried to put it back, put it right later. That was in the 1960s. At that time, there was a certain man called John Robinson. Some of you will remember him, Bishop of Woolwich, fated by organs of the media like The Observer. That's a newspaper. Uh, He produced, in the 60s, a contentious paperback, which was widely summarized in The Observer and other elements of the press called Honest to God. And that book had a profoundly disturbing effect on many Christians, especially on those who are not in a strongly biblical church. And for a while, I have to confess that it beguiled me. And in desperation, I bought a book which played a large part in my own return to sanity. That book was called Honest Religion for Secular Man. It was a counterblast to Honest to God, and it was written by Leslie Newbigin. And in it, he took John Robinson apart. He believed, but he was too kind a man, I think, that John Robinson was a heretic. But he did say that he had rejected totally orthodox biblical Christianity. Robinson popularized the works of Bonhoeffer and Bultmann and Tillich and had reduced the transcendent God of the Bible to a meaningless concept. God was love as the ultimate ground of our being. Some of you may recall that phrase. I'm not quite sure what it means. And he thinks Robinson didn't know either. Robinson stated in that book, Honest to God, that love is the ground of our being to which we ultimately come home. And Newbigin responded in that book in these terms. He said, what does it mean to say that love is the ground of our being to which we ultimately come home if one has first denied the existence of a lover? What is love when there is no lover, no God? 
The faith, I confess, is nothing at all if it is not faith in one other than myself. If I'm simply talking to myself, I'd rather stop. And later in his book, Honest to God, Honest Religion of a Secular Man, Newbigin goes on like this. He said, it is the glory of the Christian gospel that it speaks of one, Jesus Christ, who is not of the world, who is all glorious and all gracious as the world is not, but who so loved the world that he poured out himself to the uttermost that it might be filled with his glory. It is because of the might and the grace of the God, the immortal lover, that the Christian, caught up in his love, can learn to love. And the heart of the matter is to be found in Jesus' prayer for his apostles on the night of his passion. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, so I have also sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified through the truth. And Newbigin concludes this book way back in the 60s, that honest religion for secular man is abiding in that sanctification, and that as the master, so shall the disciple be. As Christians, he says, we are to live fully in the world and yet recognize that we are called people, elect people, who respond to God's revelation of himself and who are not of the world. And uh, it seems to me that Leslie Newbigin's life was a living example of that calling, being in the world and yet not of the world. That is the eternal tension and calling of all those who would call themselves Christ's disciples. And so it was a defender of and contender for the unique gospel of Jesus Christ that he will be best known through his books and talks and lectures. And among those, I'd commend to you books like The Open Secret, The Other Side of 1984, Foolishness to the Greeks, Truth to Tell, Honest Religion for Secular Man, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, and Proper Confidence. I expect that many of you um, are familiar with the poetry of John Betjeman. John Betjeman was Poet Laureate in the latter part of the last century. And I expect you'll recall the most important of questions he raised in that well-known poem of his, Christmas. And is it true, and is it true, this most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained-glass window's hue, a baby in an oxer stall, the maker of the stars and sea, become a child on earth for me? For if it is, no love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare, that God was man in Palestine. And those of you who know the poem will know that I've omitted the last erroneous line, which you can ask me about later if you want to. But for Leslie Newbigin, for Leslie Newbigin, the answer was clear. The most important truth was, of all was encapsulated in that hymn which we sing at Christmas. Lo, within the manger lies he who built 
the starry skies. If I can put it simply, there are two approaches, aren't there, to our knowledge about God. One brings certainty and one a fog. One is human speculation. The other is God's revelation of himself in the scriptures. Now, Leslie Newbigin did not hold to what many of us hold, hopefully all of us here tonight, the absolute infallibility of all the scriptures from beginning to end. It's only fair to point out, although he doesn't really argue it clearly, that he denied the doctrine of verbal inerrancy. But he did hold to the absolute supremacy of God's revelation about himself in the Bible over all human speculative inquiries about the nature of God. And he believed that only the transcendent God of truth could reveal himself in the two ways he had chosen, in his written word of the scriptures in the Bible and through his living word, the word incarnate, Jesus Christ, to whom the whole of scriptures point. And these, he would say, had to be accepted by faith and our whole lives committed to that revelation. When Leslie Newbigin returned to Britain in 1974 from India, he was absolutely shocked. Shocked by the culture which he found here in Britain, which he said was characterized by what he called a loss of hope. He believed that the Christian church in Britain and in the West had lost confidence in the truth of the Bible and the gospel. And more seriously, and because of that, it had lost interest in commending the Christian faith as truth to other people, including those of other faiths who by then were living in Britain in great numbers. And he set about to defend himself and other missionaries from the charges which were put to him by the liberals in the West. He was called a cultural imperialist, culturally arrogant, culturally proud. He was told that to commend the Christian faith to others was at best an unfriendly act and at worst a crime. Those voices remain in Britain today. He vigorously contended for the Christian faith and for the uniqueness of Jesus as the only saviour in the light of growing universalism within the Christian church, influenced greatly by those heretics John Hick and Don Cupid, with their view, which they still hold, that all faiths were simply different paths to the one truth and that all were defective. And there's a wonderful rebuttal of Hick's view in Newbigin's book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Newbigin is very clear that the Christian faith is radical and turns upside down converts to Christianity. And it is a profound, a profound challenge to all cultures. But he is very clear too that British culture and Western culture until very recently had been immensely blessed by being formed and shaped and developed in line with biblical truth since the Reformation. And he became very committed to the urgent need for Western culture to be exposed to Christian missionaries from countries such as India and others in order that the Christian faith in Britain 
might become more vibrant. He was very dismissive of liberals in their view that all faiths have defects and that all are equally effective, although defective, in terms of salvation and liberation. And he attacked very strongly those who described his whole life as a missionary as either a colossal mistake or a crime. And I believe that we need to recapture his affirmation that Jesus Christ is unique and is the final, universal, only saviour. And he was shocked when he came back to Britain to see the Christian church here in Britain largely inactive in evangelism, not interested in sharing the gospel with others and believing that all religions were essentially the same. He believed that the mission field here at home in Britain was the toughest in the world and that this was in part due to the so-called scientific culture which had developed that led to a drastic divide between what he calls the private world and the public world. And I'll return to that point later. But he does remind us, and we need reminding that, of our need for a larger vision and to see that Christianity is growing in many parts of the world and that now we have much to learn about the Christian faith from other lands. The Christian Institute is one of the few organizations in Britain that is committed to seeking to advance the view that the Bible is true publicly. It's true, because it's true. And it seems to me as supporters and trustees and staff members of the Christian Institute, we've much to learn from him. We face a, a post-modernist world that proclaims with absolute certainty the logically absurd view that the truth is, there is no truth. It's a nonsense as a statement, but it is pronounced with absolute certainty by many. And we have the immensely difficult task of proclaiming biblical moral absolutes and biblical truths in a world that affirms with certainty that there are no certainties. How did we get ourselves into such a muddle and mess? To critique and then address the postmodern world, we need to understand it, Newbegin would say. And in this regard, I think he's an immense help. His two books, particularly Foolishness to the Greeks and The Other Side of 1984, are very helpful in this. He argues that the pervading worldview here in the West is one of nihilism, a belief in nothingness, and that that is the logical conclusion of relativism and pluralism. And he traces this view back to Nietzsche, who believed that there are no such things as truths, falsehoods, goodness, and badness. Now, Newbigin argues that Western civilization from the 18th century Enlightenment onwards has progressively eliminated, year by year, the concept of divine revelation from the public world of politics, education, medicine, and what we call knowledge. Yes, he says, divine revelation is still allowed in personal and private life if you want it, providing it doesn't interfere with other people. Why has that happened? Well, he would say, is because the critical principle, the elevation of doubt 
as the most important principle of all, has been elevated above all else as the jewel and the crown of the so-called Western scientific worldview. And he would argue that this is especially tragic because the biblical view of the world and the universe gave the impetus to the growth of science. And science and the philosophy of scientism have become confused. As he concedes in one of his books, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, Christianity affirmed as a matter of faith that the universe is rational and dependent upon a transcendent creator. And thus modern science was born in a culture shaped and sustained by biblical truth. And he explains that the Roman Catholic Church attempted to put up defensive barriers against the Enlightenment, often in a wrong way. But that sadly the Protestant churches in general gradually surrendered the public sphere to control by the assumptions of the Enlightenment. And they survived, he would say, by retreating into the private world of pietism, a religion of the inner life, a religion of the home, a religion of the church, a religion of personal morality, but not something which is true in the great public world. Now, it's one of his recurring statements that we are saved and put right with God by faith in Jesus Christ and are saved for heaven. But he would argue also that we are saved for the here and now, for this world, that we might live a full, personal, and public life which glorifies our glorious God and Savior in the whole theater of the world. That retreat of which he speaks, it seems to me, has continued to this very day. And evangelicalism in many parts is often defensive, pietistic, and detached from the whole public world. And it's one of the tasks of the Christian Institute, and indeed way beyond the Christian Institute, to recapture the whole of public life and the whole of our culture for the God of the Bible. Many of us, I think, miss this point. I know I did for many years. But we do need to understand it and act on it because it is fundamental to what we are about. Now, of course, Newbigin accepts that we owe a debt to the advance of science and technology and the Enlightenment. It ended much cruelty and oppression and ignorance. And developments in science and technology have clearly brought vast material benefits to succeeding generations. But he argues that the scientific worldview is a way of life and understanding which can no longer satisfy. At the Enlightenment and in succeeding generations, the principle of doubt was elevated to the highest place of honor as the first principle of acquiring knowledge. And the view began to to prevail that doubt was the most important principle of all and that we could be certain of nothing. And it has led to that logically absurd view which I've spoken, which is so often heard in today's world by men of great academic distinction, that of this we can be absolutely certain that there are no longer any certainties. And the result is now a world without meaning, which is fast approaching nothingness. 
dogmatics and doctrine came to be viewed as the means by which people were shackled, the Christian doctrine was particularly targeted. Newbigin draws a great deal on the thinking of the philosopher Michael Polanyi, who believes that the time has come now to shift the balance in our culture between faith and doubt. And he would argue, and Newbigin draws on this, that in human understanding, faith must be primary and doubt secondary. And he points out that all knowledge rests on faith commitments. And that is as true for a scientist as it is true for a Christian believer. Newbigin is very eager always to enlist the aid of Augustine and his maxim, Credo ut intelligum, I believe, in order to understand. And he argues in both private and public life that we need a new model for our understanding and that we also need to acknowledge a proper role for dogma, dogmatics, and doctrine. And Newbigin calls us to what he calls a genuine missionary encounter between biblical revelation and our post-enlightenment culture. And I take it that this is what the Christian Institute is all about. We have, as Christians, who believe in the Bible, allowed the public world of affairs including the world of scholarship, to pass us by, so that it is now assumed we have nothing valid to say. Now, of course, he reminds us always that although we are intensely interested for God in the things of this world, the horizon for all our action in the world is not for the establishment of an earthly utopia. Our ultimate focus beyond this world is on the heavenly city, God's new creation, the new Jerusalem, which will be the home of the blessed and righteous and from which all evil and all who are evil will be excluded forever. He reminds us also that the resurrection of Jesus was to the prepared people of the disciples and other close associates. It was an event in public history. It is a matter of history. And that critical scholarship in theological colleges has falsely converted it into a purely psychological experience of the disciples of Jesus. If that's all it is and was, it has nothing to say. We need, he says, to proclaim the Bible as public truth. He's very sharp in his analysis. He says that the decision for Christians is not whether to become involved or not in public affairs, whether that be education, social legislation, sexuality, the family and the media, politics. It's about this. Are our responsibilities to be discharged under the kingship of Christ or under the dominion of Satan? And he's very critical of the so-called critical study of the Bible that has emerged since the Enlightenment in our theological schools and colleges. He points out that it has been conducted within the faith framework of the Enlightenment, with its trust and faith in the critical operation of doubt. And he charges modern biblical scholars with approaching texts with an unrealistic search for scientific certainty, which is alien to science itself. And so he says that as a result, it is difficult for modern man 
to treat the Bible as an authoritative guide for content in the private or public spheres. And he also says that the so-called neutrality of higher biblical scholars is not genuine. It's not genuinely neutral. It's already a decision against the faith that the scriptures intend to invoke. And he suggests, more than suggests, that many critical scholars come to the Bible texts wearing the spectacles of and having the assumptions of the philosophy of scientism. That worldview which says that if a question can't be answered scientifically, it is meaningless and not worth asking in the first place. He is clear that an understanding of the scriptures has to be within a context of faith, openness and obedience. And he's saddened by the fact that the Reformation complained that the Bible had become the property of the clergy. You could only understand the Bible if you could go to a clergyman and he'd explain it for you. Now, he says, it's legitimate to complain in our day and age that the Bible has become the property of so-called theologians, the guild of scholars, and he says we must rescue it from them, for it can still be clearly understood by the 21st equivalent of the peasant and the plowman. He would say that the results of modern critical scholarship are ephemeral, and in our new encounter with a public world, we need, he says, to hold that modern world up to the Bible and so re-examine our assumptions and reorder our thinking in public life. And he calls us to work for what he calls a new biblically-based plausibility structure for the public arena in which the biblical worldview is seen to be reasonable and valid and truthful. What is a plausibility structure? It's the social structure of ideas and practices in which we live and move in our public lives that create the conditions which determine whether those beliefs are seen to be plausible within the society in question. He would say, and clearly this must be true, the contemporary public world in which we live does not con connect with the ideas and the language of Christianity. The values and the beliefs of the Bible are assumed to have no connection with modern thinking. They are believed to be implausible, unlikely, and so provoke rejection. I've spent all of my professional life in the world of schooling and education and quite frankly in that world we operate in a plausibility structure that has no place for the Bible and that would I suggest be equally true for the public world of politics the media, medicine and the social services as Leslie Newbegin states modern western culture the culture in which we live now has no accepted plausibility structure he says it has developed an uneasy operative plausibility structure in which there is a sharp and unbridgeable divide between two worlds. One is the public world of facts in which Christianity has no place. And the other is the private world of beliefs and opinions and values in which Christianity may have a place 
if we choose to give it one. Most evangelicals seem to have settled for that. And Newbegin says we must challenge it, and I would agree with him wholeheartedly. And that divide between the world of facts and the world of opinions is the pivotal point of our modern plausibility structure by which it seeks to sustain itself. And of course it has within it the seeds of its own collapse. That very important point is highlighted by David Holloway in his latest book, Church and State in the New Millennium, which I hope you've read, and if you haven't, you ought to. In this he explains that Britain is not a pluralist society, it is not a multi-faith society, as is frequently claimed, as over 70% of the population still identify as being Christian, whatever they mean by it, over 70%. Why then, David Holloway asks in his book, is the Christian and moral majority so quiet, so self-effacing? One answer, he says is that the plausibility structure of modern Britain, within which beliefs are nurtured and grow or are destroyed, is being shaped by that one-fifth of the population without religious belief. Such believers, who now include, he says, a a significant group of anti-Christian people, seem to crop up disproportionately in education, the media, in particular one organ of the media, which I won't name, and various therapeutic agencies such as social work departments, areas or agencies that are the modern carriers of values. In this environment, David Holloway says, Christians are losing confidence both in their faith and in their morals. And you know, we really must come out of our hiding. We must engage in our culture in a positive way to create a biblically-based plausibility structure that integrates private life and public life. Newbegin reminds us of the awesome and winsome claims of Jesus Christ to be Lord of all. If he is not Lord of all, then he is, of course, not Lord at all. And as he points out, Christians at their conversion when they come to faith, begin to inhabit a different plausibility structure and that they should be working for a different public plausibility structure in order to live integrated lives. Enlightenment thinking throughout the whole concept of purpose in things and elevated the whole world of cause and effect, observation and measurement and induction derived from the whole area of scientific observation. Newbegin believes that the whole fissure in our culture between the public world of facts and the private world of subjective opinions and values shows up most dramatically in the world of education and schooling. And this is what he says. He says that in our schools there is a contradiction between what passes for religious education on the one hand and the rest of the curriculum on the other. In the former... Religious education, we have a supermarket of ideas and values and no facts. And that, he says, is an intolerable situation. It's one of the reasons, not that he says this, I say it, we must work for the creation of biblically-based schools in this country. Let me quote him 
from something which he wrote in Foolishness to the Greeks. This is what he says. That the development of the individual person is governed by the program encoded in the DNA molecule is a fact that every educated person is expected to know and accept. It will be part of the curriculum of our system of schools. That every human being is made to glorify God and enjoy him forever is an opinion held by some but not part of public truth. And of Scottish children, he tells us in the gospel in a pluralist society, he writes this, It is certainly true that not more than 100 years since children in Scottish schools learned in early age the fact that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that, he says, was as much fact as the movement of the stars and the Battle of Bannockburn. Today, it is not taught as a fact. And here we are brought face to face, he would say, with the need of children to be confronted with remembering that they are created beings. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Yet, if it is true that man's chief end is to know God and glorify him and enjoy him forever, it is at least as integral as anything else in the preparation of young people in their journey through life. And it is true, isn't it? It is true, and it is public truth, and it should be a foundational principle of the preparation of young people for living. Newbegin's concern is that Western culture is rapidly becoming world urban culture, and that although the Christian church is growing in many parts of the world, that Western culture is being superimposed upon it. And his concern is that Western culture is in practice at least publicly atheist and in that culture there is the world of public facts in which the Bible has no place. And he constantly expresses a concern that Protestant theology continues to tend towards little more than anthropology and a study of religion as an area of subjective human experience. He reminds us again and again and again that the Bible is dominated by the living God who acts and speaks and calls and expects a response. The Bible, he says, is as much about the public events of creation, incarnation and redemption as it is about religious experience. And he reminds us, if we need reminding, that in the school curriculum, we present the theory of evolution and tell of the human mastery of nature and the survival of the fittest. He says we may, and it's a big may, tell children about the Bible and what the Bible has to say about creation and man's fall and God's election of a people 
to be his bearers of his purpose for mankind and for the coming of the one unique Jesus Christ in whom that purpose is fulfilled. But he says those two things are different and incompatible accounts. One is taught as facts, and the other, if it is taught at all, as a symbolic way of expressing values which some happen to believe. It's taught, if it is taught at all, as a straight split between what we know and what we believe. The Bible's account, he goes on, is a fact of supreme and decisive importance because the God who designed the whole cosmos and human history has told us in his word what his purpose is for it. And he goes on constantly to remind us that the scientific activity itself is based on faith and that scientists do not do what they claim to do, easily abandon a theory. And he cites an example, the Darwinian theory of evolution by natural selection among random mutations. Many facts, he says, make that theory untenable. But that theory of evolution remains in place. He says it is a theory that can never be proved and should not be taught as fact. Newbigin is uh, very keen to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer's phrase, faith alone is certainty. Everything but faith is subject to doubt. Jesus Christ alone is the certainty of faith. Knowing always, therefore, he says, begins with an act of faith and trust. And the whole world of modern science rests on faith commitments that cannot be demonstrated by the methods of science. The relativism, he says, which is not willing to speak about truth, but only what is true for me, he says, is an evasion of the serious business of living and a preliminary symptom of the death of a culture. And that's where we are. Modern culture, he says, is in urgent need of transformation by biblical Christians contending for the truth of the Christian faith. In his book, Proper Confidence, Leslie Eubin argues that the language of Scripture must either be the cornerstone or the stone of, or the stone of stumbling in our thought. He argues that it cannot simply be one of the building bricks in the whole structure of thought. He argues, of course, that it must be the cornerstone. The certainty we have, he says, rests on the faithfulness of the living God, who is the author, sustainer, and completer of history, who has revealed his truth to us in the Bible. And in that same book, he goes on to argue for what we must argue, the reality of sin and the fallen human mind. He's quite clear that the human mind is fallen. And he states that the world is not as free as it thinks it is. He says we are not honest inquirers seeking the truth. We are alienated from truth and enemies of it. We are by nature idolaters, constructing images of truth shaped by our own ideas. And he adds that this was demonstrated once for all when truth became incarnate in Jesus and we see the human response 
in trying to do truth to death. He goes on to say that human beings are in bondage and only the truth can set us free. And that the radical judgment on human nature is part of the very marrow of the Bible itself. And that only in Jesus can men and women be set free. He adds that truth can only be fully understood with an irreversible commitment to Jesus Christ. And in Newbegin's view, as Christians, we are to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Bible until it becomes the basis of our thinking and feeling and doing. And a true and necessary part of apologetics is to show how the gospel and the Bible enables us to understand the reality of private and public human experience. The human heart, he says, and he quotes Calvin, and he is, of course, derives his thinking from Calvin, is a factory of idols. We have to understand that we are lost without Christ and in need of rescue. Biblical Christianity, he says, is a rational faith, a reasonable faith, and that God has revealed in his word that we are made in his image and that he, and he alone, is a perfect moral and rational being. And that God has also revealed in his word that as creatures we are made in his image, we are fallen, tragically flawed, and that this has affected our minds and our reason. One reason must then, a reason, he says, a human reason must become obedient to God's revelation of himself in his written word and in his living word, Jesus Christ. I'm certain, wouldn't we all, that Newbigin would have enjoyed the company of Paul the Apostle. As we read of him, as we heard read this evening in the book of Acts, reasoning from the scriptures in his missionary encounters with the culture of the world in which he was engaging. Christian apologetics is vital. And Newbigin's concept of apologetics is rooted in the nature and the content of the gospel Itself. And this is what he writes in his book, Proper Confidence. He says this, The affirmation that the one, Jesus Christ, by whom and through whom and for whom all creation exists, is to be identified with a man who was crucified and rose bodily from the dead. And that cannot possibly be accommodated with any plausibility structure except the one of which it is the cornerstone. He also reasserts the priority of the gospel itself as establishing the only proper and valid grounds for the task of apologetics. He argues that no sufficient grounds can be found on which the gospel can be defended other than those of the gospel itself. He says this, and you may or may not agree with this, every claim to show grounds for believing the gospel, which lie outside the gospel itself, can be shown to rest ultimately on faith commitments which can be questioned, for they imply that truth about God can be established outside of God. Speculative philosophy, he says, must be judged by biblical revelation. He adds... The gospel is ultimately reasonable 
only within its own biblical framework and that reasonableness is only able to be understood fully by a mind which has been divinely enlightened and converted by the gospel. To the unconverted mind, the gospel of a crucified God and Savior seems ultimately to be unreasonable and even foolish. I think it's possible that Newbigin in all of this plays down the significance of common grace. He says very little of it. And he perhaps plays down the fact that not all engagers in the dialogue for truth have bought into the critical doubt of the prevailing post-enlightenment mind of much of our contemporary culture. I think that's an open question, which I'm not quite certain of the answer. In conclusion, what would I take from Leslie Newbigin? What do I believe that we should take from him? And what do I believe the Christian Institute and all its activities should take from him? I list six things. They're interrelated and could be reduced to one, two, three, four, five, or six. But there are six things that I take from him. First of all, and an obvious point, surely, for him, the priority of Scripture. And so the need for every single one of us to take seriously as a daily discipline, I mean a daily discipline, the faithful and trusting study of the Bible as God's revelation of himself and of the truth about ourselves and the world in which we've been placed. It is true. And thus it's publicly true and privately true. And if it's not true, then it cannot be true for me. Something cannot be true for me if it is publicly untrue. And so I suggest daily to submit to the whole of Scripture as truth, as it rebukes and corrects and teaches and trains us in holiness and righteousness. A second point I would take from him, a need to distinguish between personal piety and holiness, which is essential for every Christian, we are meant to be godly people, holy people. And the need at the same time to recognize that we must all be rescued from a pietism that turns its back on the world. We are to be in the world, but to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. And recall again that prayer of Jesus for his disciples in Gethsemane as Calvary lay ahead. And that prayer of Jesus for all of us. I do not pray that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 15 to 17. And then there is that need to recapture the belief and the confidence of the belief that Jesus is both uniquely Savior and Lord. And the need to work out what does that mean to acclaim Jesus as Lord in the public arena of our daily lives, the lives of leisure and work and morality 
and education and politics and medicine and social services and the justice system. That's a huge task. And there's much ground to recover. And allied to that, fourthly, the need to engage actively from a biblical perspective with our dying postmodern culture and to work for a plausibility structure in which biblical truth is not one of the building blocks but the cornerstone. And this is in many ways, as I understand it, the work of the Christian Institute which seeks to stand and work for biblical truth in the public arena and which seeks to apply biblical truth as the only ultimate frame of reference for every single issue that we face today. And fifthly, I would say, the need for us all to develop a proper confidence in the truth of the Bible. In that battle for what are competing assumptions and claims and faith positions, we are on the victory side. We are called to be in the public arena contending for what is true. We're there. There is no opt-out clause and no retiring age for Christians. Surely Leslie Newbegin is a marvellous example of that. Right to the end, serving his Lord and Master. We've been called to a life of faith and a life of obedient service that is perfect freedom. The victory over sin and falsehood and death and evil has been won for us on the cross of Calvary by Jesus Christ, our unique universal saviour. We share to a degree already in that victory, but its final consummation lies beyond this life of time and space and will be known in the victorious life of the new heaven and the new earth which God has prepared for those who love and obey him. And so it is not an escapist but a proper cry to urge onwards to victory. We know in whom we have believed and we are convinced that he, Jesus Christ, is able to guard what we have entrusted to him for that day. There's great confidence in that. We know Jesus and we can be confident that Jesus will take care of us ultimately. It is God himself who is the guarantor of the gospel. It is his ultimate responsibility to preserve it. We may see the evangelical faith, the faith of the gospel, everywhere spoken against, and the apostolic message of the New Testament ridiculed. We may have to watch an ever-increasing heresy in the church as our own generation abandons the faith of its fathers. We do not know. But we must not be afraid. God will never allow the light of the gospel to be put out. True, he has committed it to us, frail, fallible creatures. He has placed his treasure in brittle earthen vessels that the power may be of God and not of ourselves. And we must play our part in guarding, defending and contending for the gospel. But he has not taken his hands off it. He himself is its final guardian. And he will preserve the truth that he has committed to the church. And we know this because we know him in whom we trust 
and continue to trust. And so, as activists, as we must be in God's world, growing in personal holiness, we can properly sing with Charles Wesley. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Change from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. And sixthly, and relatedly, we must not accept the divide between a public world of facts from which the Bible and biblical truth is excluded and a private world of belief and values in which biblical Christianity is one option of many in the supermarket of our culture. It seems to me proper that this uh, lecture, these thoughts on Leslie Newgren should be the conclusion of these autumn lectures in this, our 10th anniversary year. Of course, there are aspects of him with which we would not agree, but it seems to me that his summons to the primacy of biblical truth in our personal and public lives should strike a chord as we thank God for the foundation and the development of the Christian Institute. We are as an institute set up to witness to the whole truth of Scripture and to uphold the Bible in all its fullness as the ultimate frame of reference for the whole of public life. Those who have committed their lives in faith as staff members of the Christian Institute deserve our prayers and our active support in so many ways. But all of us, all of us, must surely be prepared and willing as Leslie Newbigin was, to spend all our days in the service of Jesus Christ, to whom all the scriptures point. This will give us, of course, unspeakable joy, ineffable peace, and much blessing, but it inevitably will lead us to conflict. I love to read the missionary encounters with the culture of his day by the Apostle Paul. He knew and wrote so much, didn't he, of joy and peace and blessing. But he also knew and wrote so much of conflict within that joy and peace and blessing. We're on the victory side, but we must to a degree expect and bear something of what Paul himself spoke as a result of his own engagement with the culture of his time. He said, Do you remember, I bear, branded in my body, the marks of the Lord Jesus. And I believe those marks were not just the physical lashings and beatings and cruelty. They speak also of the mental and emotional and physical scars of his witnessing to the truth of Christ in the marketplaces and the public squares of his time. I wonder whether we bear mental and emotional scars as we witness to the truth. Do I? Do we? That, it seems to me, is the cost of the challenge of discipleship to which Jesus calls us and to which Leslie Newbigin witnessed. I'm going to just end this part of the talk by reading a very short piece of poetry which I have read before 
in various places. It's by a Christian activist and a Christian believer and Christian poet, Amy Carmichael. Of course, it's not inspired scripture. But I believe that it sufficiently points us to the point I'm trying to make. It is a very imaginary dialogue between the living, risen, exalted, living Lord Jesus Christ and someone who claims to be a disciple and follower of his. And the poem is in the form of a question. And after I've read it, I hope we can just reflect on it for a few moments before we move into a time of comment and questions. But after I've read it, I'm just going to sit down for a few moments and perhaps think about these words and things that have been said. It's a poem called No Scar. It's a question. A question to you and to me. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Lean me against a tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that compass me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far, who has no wound, no scar? Not obligatory. Comments are welcome. Uh, Peter tells me that the, well, if not the quality of the questions and the answers, I think probably both, but the quality of the sound is superlative, and that's because you have uh, been disciplined. And so uh, uh, Mr. Dobson will once more return with his microphone, which is not to be clutched or touched or poked, but spoken quietly into at a distance. So if anyone has a comment or question um, I have to be content to take it so please if not I shall advertise the bookstall yes sir there's a question in the back Um, not trying to provoke you or anything. Uh, just a, a question relating to how, uh, how um, the scriptures uh, are going to relate to public life, really, when uh, the central message is about Christ, about redemption. I mean, we seem to be expecting that it will do a job of upholding a democracy, of holding the morals of democracy, which tended to be a sort of a very liberal sort of agenda, you know, make the people moral and they'd be good, they'd be good Democrats. And also in the world of science, uh, are we expecting sort of the, the, the scriptures to guide us in, into scientific research? I mean, where we have the theonomists in America sort of trying to promote Old Testament sort of 
uh, regime for today. Where exactly do you think Leslie Newbigin is going to come to on this one? Well, I think he would say uh, that the Bible is true from beginning to end. And, of course, the Bible is full of moral absolutes which are eternal and true and unchanging. And that those moral absolutes in terms of many of the issues which face us today, whether it be cloning or embryonic research of one kind or another, or abortion or genetic engineering, whatever, those absolute moral principles are God's principles and cannot be changed. And therefore, they are significant for all the moral issues which face us today. In terms of science, and I can't read his mind on that, uh, I think he would say um, clearly he was sceptical, very sceptical, not as sceptical as some of us are perhaps about the theory of evolution, that uh, um, there, is a, there are truths there that God created this world. Uh, it did not evolve in a purpose, purposeless way. And that one of the real issues of evolutionary theory is evolutionism itself, that philosophy, which has led us to take a very relativistic and instrumental view of many of the issues, the moral issues which face us. So I guess he would say those kind of things, that the Bible is true, and therefore he would be utterly opposed to the recently retired Bishop of Edinburgh, uh, Richard Holloway, who said that the Bible is an outdated handbook and that has nothing to say to the moral and spiritual issues which face us today. He'd be utterly opposed to that. He would take a very conservative view of those issues, and so he would say, yes, those, those absolutes are eternally true and are applicable to the issues which face us, and that uh, the important issues before us are really, in one sense, no different to the moral issues which have faced mankind down the ages. There's nothing new in that sense. Anyone else want to? There's uh, someone who promised not to ask a question over here is going to. Can, but, but can you just hold on a minute? No, not, not you, I'm afraid. <laughs> really just asking for some clarification. I think I missed um, fully the use of the, the, the phrase plausibility structure. Mm. Uh, and I. I welcome uh, a little bit more elaboration on that and particularly the alternative plausibility structures. I think it perhaps has a bearing on, on the continu continuation of, of what you were just saying, but could you clarify plausibility structure? A plausibility structure? Yeah. What is a plausibility structure, I think, essentially, and what had you to say about that? I suppose a plausibility structure, as I understand it, is the kind of intellectual atmosphere which we, which we breathe, um, the kind of public world in which we live in now would not have any place at all, as I understand it, for the Bible and for biblical values and biblical truth and the claims of Jesus Christ. It's a very secular intellectual atmosphere in which we breathe. No real room for God either. The whole concept of life being viewed from an eternal perspective, the Bible would say, that you can only understand life seen from an eternal perspective. Uh, the plausibility structure, such as it is that we have at the moment, is that our horizons are man-centered, uh, that there is no eternal perspective to life. And so, uh, and, and I think he would agree with what David Holloway is saying there, 
that although many human beings actually, uh, although they're not biblical Christians as we understand it, would share many of the values and principles of the Bible but can't articulate them, those who form opinions, those who form opinions in this day and age, uh, people like the BBC, uh, deliberately and willfully exclude the whole biblical dimension of life. And so it is assumed that our life is man-centered and limited to this world of space and time which we can see. And he would argue that life cannot be understood for anybody unless it's seen from the divine perspective, unless we see this life as a preparation for eternity, unless human beings are immortal beings destined either for eternal hell or eternal heaven, unless that is part of our plausibility structure, when these things are said, if they're said at all, they are just sifted out of our whole way of looking at things. Uh, I mean, it's a very trivial example, very trivial indeed. Um, I really almost stopped watching the BBC, um, and almost stopped watching television, for that matter. However, if you, for example, I noticed me following the kind of speeches that uh, President Bush has been giving in the United States. If you see them conveyed largely, say, on Sky Television, at least you hear him talk about God and his belief in God and his belief in the purpose of life. And very often, very often in our media, those bits of it are excluded. And what is being said, I suppose, is that opinion formers uh, in our society, they have a worldview. They have a worldview, not a religious worldview, it is a worldview. It's a faith position. You know, in science, people like Richard Dawkins, it's a faith position. They view the world in a man-centered, God-denying way. And those are, they are influential people in our media, in the newspapers, in radio and television, and they, in a sense, determine the kind of plausibility structure we have. And therefore, when we make our statements, if we ever do, they seem to be, fo seem to be foolish and wrong. That's what he's saying, and he's saying that uh, the biblical worldview, the great truth of the Bible, must be the cornerstone uh, of our plausibility structure, and we've got to argue for that. And one of the reasons why we don't succeed very often in our campaigning for all kinds of issues is that we are working in a plausibility structure which is determined by a minority in the media. That's what I think he would be saying. Uh, I hope that's reasonably clear. But. There was another hand up before I had, and we may have lost it. Lady here. Uh, just to refer to the first question, I think we would all subscribe to the desirability of protesting against so much evil that we see around us because after all that would be no more than attempting to follow in the footsteps of John the Baptist who said publicly what, what you are doing is not right as I see it the problem is not recognizing the need to do it but how to do it because from experience if one writes to one's MP even although he is a Christian the response received is sadly dismissive if one writes to the Daily Telegraph One's letters are so edited that what one says is virtually valueless. Perhaps we could have a little bit of advice as to how to protest meaningfully. Well, I mean, I agree. My letters to the Daily Telegraph are not even published, um, <laughs> let alone edited. Um, 
it's it is it is difficult. Uh, I think all I can say is, uh, you do those things, and praise God that you do them. I suspect that insufficient people do those things. I really do think that. Um, it, it is true that our comments can be ignored and dismissed. Uh, not to be provocative, but I was speaking today to um, a minister uh, in the Outer Hebrides by telephone. And uh, he said to me, I don't want to upset any sensibilities here, but he said, how do you explain the fact that many Christians vote Liberal Democrat? I couldn't and didn't try. And he was making the point that uh, in the recent general election uh, that uh, the only one candidate in the general election, even in an area like the Western Isles, which is probably the largest church-going part of Britain, uh, the candidate who uh, had a biblical view of these issues got probably the lowest number of votes. And uh, I can't remember now whether in the Western Isles it was a Labour or Liberal elected, but it was one of the two. can't remember. It doesn't matter. Uh, and it's a fact. I think we must witness. All I can say is, in this world, on these issues, we're not guaranteed human success. And if the Christian Institute simply operate on the basis it would succeed with all its campaigns, it should go home now. All we're required to do by God is to be faithful to his revelation and to the scriptures. The outcome is in his hands and under his providence. Now that might not be very reassuring to you. All I would say is go on writing your letters, go on flooding the Daily Telegraph uh, about its nonsensical views at the moment in its campaign for what it calls human freedom. Go on writing these things, go on protesting, but let's do it in more numbers. People, Christians, are essentially lazy. I have to say that. And I've experienced that on a number of issues. They don't easily uh, get off their knees from prayer and get on their feet and off their backsides and forgive the language and get involved in these issues. It's important we do. Praise God that you're doing that. I hope everyone in this room has done that. I suspect they haven't. I don't know. That's wrong of me to say that. But do it in great number and do it with great regularity. But the more we do it, I think, the more likely we are to break down these very, very hard citadels uh, uh, that we have. The media, and we've allowed it to happen, and that Newbigin's point is over the years, we have ceased to believe that Christianity and the Bible are public truths, that they have a place in the world of public events. We're now at the receiving end of decades and decades and decades of that, and so we're in a very weak position. His call is um, to rise up and try and do something about it. And that's all I can say to you. We've got to be persistent in our writing of letters and not be too disappointed when they're not replied to or they're replied to in a way which doesn't satisfy us or that they edit our letters. It's better, well, I don't know, it's better to have your letter edited than not published at all. Depends what they've done with it, I think. If they've mutilated, you should complain and you deserve a right of reply, I think. Anyway, um, I, all I can say is that we must go on and do it. We have an uphill battle because for many, many decades and centuries probably, the Bible has been more and more ignored as a source of truth for the public world in which we live and move. But if it's only impacts on our private life, it's, we're witnessing less than we should be. That's all I would say. Go on writing. Yes, there's a question in the front here. I hope it's not too difficult. Oh, it's a comment. Let's have some comments. 
many years ago, I was very fortunate to work with Mary Whitehouse on a job, and uh, she was saying a very similar thing. When the first time she realised she was going to get opposition from all that she did, she felt God saying, look, Mary, give it to me, but you carry on. And I think for a lot of us, we just have to carry on, don't we, and get on with it and do it, even if we do get aggro or misrepresentation or whatever. It's just that we just have to do it. And Mary was another great example of a lady who battled for truth and died a few days ago. And thank God for her life, too. She was ridiculed and abused by the BBC in the form of his Director General, I remember, in a shocking way. These non-elected, unrepresentative people we have allowed, uh, and we now find it very difficult to get in, we've allowed to dominate the public square and the public arena. That's where we are.